I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's Sponsored Insight is Tim Lyon, the CEO of Antares Capital a $65 billion private credit manager that began funding private equity-sponsored businesses in 1996. Antares is one of the longest-standing lenders to private businesses, having passed ownership to GE in 2005 and CPBIB in 2015, all the while steadily providing liquidity to the economy. Our conversation covers three decades of lending, from the early years dominated by bank activity to the modern era of private credit asset management. We discuss the changes in the business over time, the resources required to succeed, and opportunities and risks going forward. Before we get going, following up from the last spread the word when I went to create an auto-response on LinkedIn messaging, I found out that LinkedIn limits the number of characters you can put in that message. My actual auto-response now includes links for our mailing list, premium content, and sponsored insights application, but here's what I'd really like to say. Thanks so much for reaching out. I'm incredibly grateful you enjoy the show, and I wish I had the extra 15 minutes you and everyone else on LinkedIn requests to pick my brain. And by the way, we both know that 15 minutes would turn into a half hour because that's the minimum time block available in Outlook's calendar. It's possible you're reaching out just so you can tell your buddies we spoke. I'm cool with that. This whole podcast celeb thing is pretty awesome. So go ahead and tell them anyway. Since I just can't afford the time, I'm happy to tell you exactly what wisdom I would share, not just once, but every week. All you have to do is go to our website at capitalallocators.com and sign up for our mailing list. Even better, you can subscribe to a premium membership for just $250 and get in the inner circle. Lastly, If you're asking why you can't find the latest Private Equity Deals episode, it's because Private Equity Deals is a different podcast from Capital Allocators, just like the Tim Ferriss Show, All In, and Invest Like the Best. So go ahead and search on your podcast player. You'll find it waiting for you there. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim Lyon. Tim, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you take me back to how you got started in the credit world? I was the son of two educators. So when I chose a college, I chose University of Illinois. My parents were both big fans of smaller liberal arts colleges, so they weren't a big fan of me going to Illinois. But they said, hey, if you're going to go to a big public university, you're not going to go straight into business. I had been fascinated with business since I was a little kid was focused on the stock market in second and third grade, a little unusual. But they said, hey, if you go to University of Illinois, you're going to get that liberal arts background. So I majored in economics. So I took a lot of the liberal arts classes, but I also took finance and accounting, was really, really interested in finance and economics in particular. And 
I spoke to one of my father's friends who is a very successful business person who said, you should really go work for one of the banks in Chicago. They spend a lot of money on their training programs. You're going to learn about a lot of different companies. And importantly, you're going to learn about credit. So I interviewed and ended up getting a job with a bank in Chicago called American National Bank. It was part of First Chicago. And it was the fifth largest bank in Chicago. Great training program. And that was the starting credit. What was credit work like back then? So I still remember back then we're doing income statements and balance sheets by hand on a ledger. I'd say at American National Bank, I learned credit, but I actually learned a lot more about cash flow lending when I moved to Heller Financial. And that's where I really started to learn, okay, how do you underwrite cash flow transactions? How do you underwrite loans to private equity sponsors? The market, though, was quite inefficient, Ted. If you think about it, this is be dating myself here. I joined Heller in 1990. So the private equity market was nascent for sure. If a sponsor had a three or $400 million fund, that was pretty big. And there was no term private credit or private debt. So that's where I learned about cash flow lending was at Heller Financial. What was the distinction for you between cash flow lending and asset-backed lending? At American National, I was doing more asset-based lending. So it was underwriting a company-based loan. You advance against AR and inventory and PP&E, and you're looking at it from a liquidation standpoint. So it was this totally new approach of underwriting the business itself and knowing that there's no way I'm going to be repaid from a liquidation of the assets. I'm underwriting the value of the business. So I want to underwrite companies that are market leaders. Something that they do is proprietary. They're highly diversified. They have a reason to exist. It's a recurring revenue business, that type of thing. So while it was new to me, I actually liked it a lot more than asset-based. What was the path from being a loan officer at a bank like Heller to what became an asset management business based on private credit? I'll give you the story of how we ended up at Antares. So we were at this very large finance company and Heller, we were part of this small group that was doing sponsor cash flow lending. They were a big asset-based lender. They were a factoring business and one of the individuals in our shop, a guy named Barry Shearer, had the idea that why don't we take our business and go do this on our own? And that's all we'll do is sponsor cash flow lending. It will own a piece of the business. And I think sponsors will love it. We'll make the credit decisions. So it's an interesting story. Barry ran it by a number of us, and we were all very interested. But obviously, to get started in our business, you need a lot of capital. So he ran the idea by a close friend of his, a guy named Shell Lubar out of Milwaukee. And Shell was a very wealthy individual. He was talking to Shell about potentially investing in the firm. Unbeknownst to Barry, Shell said, Hey, I'm on the board of Mass Mutual. And this is something that they may find really appealing. Let me set up a meeting. He set up a meeting. And within a month, we started Antares Capital. So it was a very, very quick process with Mass Mutual in terms of getting it approved. And they initially backed us with a billion dollars. 
and we owned the company with them. What was the activity like back then? It's really interesting when I think back to those times because it's so different than today. The market was multiples were more like sponsors were buying companies for seven and a half, eight times. Rarely would you see a purchase price above that. We were loaning three and a half, four, four and a half times. The pricing was actually quite good, but the competitive landscape was so different than it is today. So back then there were banks. And what's interesting is banks have come in and out of the market over time, but back then it was more the regional banks. So we competed with LaSalle Bank out of Chicago, Key Bank, even to a small extent for Chicago. We competed with some of the French banks. For some reason, the French banks were pretty strong back then. So it was BNP, Credit Agricole, and Indus Suez. But it was an inefficient market. The syndication market was there. And if you had a financing that was greater than $100 million, it was syndicated. Because lenders at that time only held $30 million in a deal. So just very, very different from today. What happened with that business in terms of its size and scale over that first decade? So I'd start by saying sponsors loved the idea that their coverage person was, in many cases, sitting on the investment committee and owned a piece of the firm. I started covering the West Coast, and it was a time when there were a lot of middle market private equity sponsors that started on the West Coast, particularly in San Francisco in the mid to late 90s. So Antares resonated with a lot of the sponsors. Now, we were still competing with our prior firm, Heller Financial. And I would argue Heller was number one in the market. GE was probably number two, and we were number three. What happened along the way, which was hugely beneficial to Antares, is that we started the company in 96. In 2001, GE acquired Heller. So what was life like under GE? It's an interesting story. None of us wanted to sell to GE because we had seen what had happened with the Heller business. So we were interested in a lot of the other buyers. GE lobbed in a pretty big price. So we and MassMutual had a fiduciary obligation to review the deal. MassMutual actually agreed to this, that we would only sell to GE if the Antares management team was running the business, meaning we were running the business and we were making the credit decisions because it was really that credit process that was a mess. We were there almost 10 years. It worked well for about eight. The last two years, GE could not in any way, shape, or form keep up with the regulators. It was a company that had very poor systems. They had made all these acquisitions and were operating on a bunch of disparate systems. So all of a sudden, the credit process changed. Things became a lot more difficult. So if GE had not decided to sell the GE and Terry's business, they would have started to lose a lot of the people. So what happened in that sale? So they decided to put the Antares business on the block because they felt like it had significant franchise value, and it did. And many of our competitors, many of whom you've interviewed in the past, were in the running to buy the company. And in the end, CPP prevailed. What did that transaction look like? They were buying a large book of loans. So the book was a little over $12 billion and they paid more than book. And they invested significant equity, and the management team also invested equity in the business. So 
basically when the deal was done the first time, it was just CPP and management. And about a year later, they brought another Canadian investor in Northleaf Capital. So over those, call it close to 20 years since you started, you go from 1 billion to 12, two transactions, syndicated market. What did the market for what you were doing look like seven or eight years ago when you did that sale to CPP? You were hearing some people call it private credit, but still it was nothing like it is today. And as you know, the market's been growing at double digit rates. It's expected to grow at double digit rates for the next five years. You still had some banks around. And what I would say, some of the smaller middle market players had more of a presence back then. So Madison, BMO, it's now known as Apigem. Aries and Gala were around at that time when we started. Owl Rock slash Blue Owl really was not even around at that time. So the market has grown exponentially over that eight-year period. So I'll give you an example. So CPP bought, let's say, $12, $13 billion balance sheet. Today, we manage $64 billion. So just to give you a sense of the growth over that time period, and the balance sheet doubled in size, the asset management business that was essentially nothing at the time of the purchase, that was basically a startup, is now significantly larger than the balance sheet. When you grow the amount of capital you're managing, whether it's on balance sheet or in funds, how did the nature of the market change? You think of a syndicated market as everyone's in it together, right? You're trying to find the capital for the deals. Then there's so much capital that you can imagine there being competition and you probably don't syndicate anything anymore. When did that start to shift in the market? So we had created the Unitronch product when I was back at GE and Terry's. I actually led that effort. So we started that in 2010. And honestly, when we started the Unitronch product, we really thought this is going to be an alternative financing vehicle for sponsors to use during periods of market dislocation. Had no idea that it would actually become this primary financing vehicle, which it has. In 2000, let's say, 16, a three or a $400 million Unitronch was a pretty decent sized deal. By 2019, that was $600 million. And as you know today, it's multi-billion dollar unit tranches. Lenders can hold north of a billion, but a lot of lenders in the private credit market hold two, three, four, five hundred million dollars on a deal. So the evolution of the industry is this idea of at one time people say, what's the EBITDA where a deal goes syndicated? At one time it was 50 million, then it became 75 million, then it became a hundred. If a deal comes in our shop today, a $100 million EBITDA company, there's a very good chance that's going to go private credit, not syndicated. You mentioned the asset size of Antares today. I'd love to hear how you've evolved into the breadth of activities that you participate in. When we started the asset management group, and we really didn't start raising outside funds for a couple years after CPP's purchase. So we closed our first SMA a few years after they purchased us, raised a couple multi-investor funds. We've raised significant separately managed accounts. I did a lot of research talking to others in the industry. One of the things I learned is, yeah, you might get paid a little bit less for the larger separately managed accounts with really large global institutional investors, but there's going to be economies gained with that as well. 
So it probably is going to be better to have, an example, 10 to 15 really, really significant separately managed accounts versus trying to manage 80 small ones. To me, a small separately managed account is anything under $300 million. So in this marketplace that's changed so dramatically, when you're talking to a company, how do you differentiate yourself from your peers? I talk first, Ted, about the sponsor because more of the sell for the financing is with the sponsor than it is the borrower, unless the borrower is already in our portfolio. So with the sponsor, in many cases, we've known these private equity sponsors since the sponsor started the company. We're now 27 years in business. So many of these sponsors, we were around when the firm was founded. We've worked with them for many years. We've worked through difficult situations with them because not every deal goes the way it was originally intended. So they've spent time in our credit advisory group, aka a workout group. We've had very difficult conversations with the sponsors, but that's actually further enhanced our relationship with them. So that's one thing. These sponsors know that we see the vast majority of deals in the marketplace. We're really responsive. They know that we're going to be competitive when it comes to the multiples and that basically the leverage we're willing to provide and the pricing. And then also, how much can we hold? So a lot of it is the consistency. We've been doing it forever. Our reliability, it's a huge thing and it sounds so simple, Ted, but if we say we're going to get there, unless there's something crazy that pops up in diligence, we're going to get there and we're going to get there on the same terms that we had originally outlined. So I think that's really a big part of it. And the people, they know our originators and credit folks, it's a really, really experienced group. So most of these sponsor coverage professionals have been covering these sponsors for a long time, and I know most of them as well. What's the breadth of the Antares organization today? So we have 435 employees, and it's about evenly split between what I would call the front end and the infrastructure side of the business. And how about on the investing side? It's essentially half. Half the business is front end. Front end would be originators that call on sponsors, the underwriting team that's underwriting the new deals, portfolio management team that's both managing the deals and doing a lot of work on industries. So each portfolio manager covers a specific industry, goes in depth on that industry, knows what's going on in that industry. And then we also have our credit advisory team. That's the investing side. As you work through those teams, I'd love to hear a little more about how your process works. So you mentioned originators, long relationships with the sponsors. What does that look like day to day? Sure. So the goal of the originator is to gain trusted advisor status with the sponsor. So that means we want to be the first call on the last call. So we want that sponsor to call us, to run the company by us, the structure that they're considering, what they like about the deal. You need to understand too, the market's pretty efficient. If a deal is an auction deal, we may be seeing that from as little as two or three sponsors to as much as 20 sponsors may be contacting us on that one deal. So we have a screening committee, very senior folks, on the front end. So when I say the front end, I'm talking about originations and credit professionals that are evaluating the deal. So basically, the best way to think about the originations team and the credit team, they're investors. It's our investment team. They're looking at it and determining, is this a company we want to finance? And if so, 
what do we think the appropriate leverage multiples are and how would we price it? But they also really dig in and say, okay, it's early on. It's an investment banking book. The investment bank is going to sell. It's all positive. From our side, we're lenders. There's downside risk. There's really no upside. So we're looking at it and saying, what are the major issues with that particular company? How do we think we're going to mitigate those? And then if it makes it through screening, we would do a little bit more work, take it to our investment committee. Assuming it goes well with our investment committee, we issue a proposal. If we win the deal, we continue our diligence, ultimately commit, and then close. That process, Ted, has not really changed in 20 plus years. So it's the same process, the rigor that's applied on every deal that comes in the door. And there are deals that come in where our originator doesn't even need to take it to the screening committee because he or she just knows up front, we're not going to do this deal. When you go from, in the old days, a sponsor to as many as 20 looking at a deal, I'd love to hear more about the information that comes to you, particularly when you have many sponsors looking at the same deal and what that does to your ability to understand the company and underwrite the risk. It can get a little tricky if a couple sponsors are doing additional work and trying to win a deal at the very end, trying to gain exclusivity. And normally that's only down to three. And maybe they're doing a lot of diligence work that they're paying for. And if they lose the deal, they're out of pocket. That's where you may need to create trees because one sponsor may be sharing information that shouldn't benefit the others, i.e. they're doing a consulting report with McKinsey or Bain. But other than that, you're basically working off of a investment banking book. And then our investing team puts together a list of questions. And they're going through those questions with sponsors. But until such time that you really would need to have people tree off, it's the core, the originators covering their sponsors. The investing team or credit team is the same team. So let's say that's four or five people from associate up to managing director. They are taking in all of the information, getting answers to all of their questions to make a really informed decision. How much different information would you get compared to the other lenders that sponsors may be showing the same deal? I think it's a pretty efficient market. What we may gain is if we're going to be seeing the deal from more sponsors. So maybe some of our competitors are seeing it from four or five and we're seeing it from eight. And a couple of the ones that we're seeing it from have operating partners that bring expertise. So on a couple of the calls, our credit team early on may be on calls with someone who has deep knowledge of a particular industry, and we're learning from that individual as well. When you see a deal that you'd like to underwrite and you know it's competitive, how do you think about pricing it? We're not underwriting really tough credits. We're not a distress shop. So we're underwriting really solid market-leading businesses. So maybe on the spread, there could be a 25 basis point difference and maybe on the fee, 25 to 50 basis point difference between different lenders competing for a deal. You have a bunch of really experienced people on our investment committee, our investing team all looking at it saying, here's where I think we need to be to win the deal. It's a bit of a give and take in terms of the deal and the pricing. 
up until the last, call it, year and a half, there was just an abundance of capital and deals getting done, and obviously the boom in private credit. As you're going through that period of time, how do you think about where you're a price taker and where you're a price maker? There certainly were periods of time, Ted, where from a relative value standpoint, you look at it and you just say, wow, the competition out there, we knew about a number of lenders that had pulled back. They were short on capital. You're very aware of what's going on in the market. You begin to hear those types of things. You're surprised to see that, hey, someone else isn't showing up on this call. They're not competing for the deal. So in those cases, you look at it and you say, wow, I think that our pricing on this deal can be 50 basis points higher than it may have been 75, 100 basis points higher than it may have been in a very hot market. And I hate the term price taker, to be honest, because if we don't feel or believe that the pricing on a deal, the risk rewards in line, we're just not going to do it. So I look at it and say, we're going to make that decision on each deal that we're doing. And on some deals, yes, the market's moved up. There's less competition. We're going to receive some enhanced pricing. So is everyone else that's doing that deal. How do you build a portfolio out of all these companies that come through the door? We've been doing it for 27 years. And the way we approach it is very diversified and defensively oriented portfolios. Generally, we're trying to make portfolios as diverse as possible, diverse by obligor concentration. So generally low, 1, 2%, 1% even better. Diversified in terms of industry for sure. So our largest industries are healthcare software and business services. They're about 50% of our portfolio. So that's the idea. That's how you build it. So today, that portfolio if you take all the companies that we finance today, it's about 480 companies. When you have that broad of a mix of businesses, how do you integrate what's happening in the economy through what you're seeing in the businesses with some of the decisions that you're making? So it's a combination of investment committee that's making the real-time decisions on deals and our executive committee. Our business today is a 24-7 business. Originators and the investor, front-end folks are constantly providing us feedback on deals that are happening in the market, particularly, let's say we lose a deal. So we're learning of the terms of that deal, reacting real-time, hey, was that an anomaly? Is that maybe some new lender in the market just trying to gain share? Or has the market really moved that much? That's on the investor side. We have a portfolio of 480 companies, so we're able to see what's going on in a bunch of different industry sectors. That makes us much better investors on the front end because so many of these companies that are coming in, one of the first things the team does is look at comparable companies in our portfolio to see, okay, what has revenue been growing? What are margins? What's CapEx? So that helps us make informed decisions. And then at our executive committee level, it's a combination of talking about just competitive dynamics, fundraising, what's changing in the environment. So investment committee meets three official days a week. They typically meet five because there's deals that pop up. Our executive committee meets once a week, but we're talking to each other every day because we have to, to provide each other with feedback that we're learning in the market to make better decisions. 
How has your process changed as you've scaled the business? I think it'd be really tough today to be a player in private credit that's a billion or a five billion or even a $10 billion player. It's tough to make it work. So you need to be a player of scale. Is it more complex than it was 20 years ago? Sure. But we've set up the company to address that. So I would argue that this is a business that actually becomes easier the bigger you become because there are significant economies of scale on the infrastructure part. And honestly, even on the front end, as you grow this business and have more AUM. As the economic winds are shifting a little bit these days, I'd love to walk through some of the opportunities and risks you're seeing. Where are the areas that you're excited about? In the base direct lending business, just really excited about how much I think that's going to grow. So I think at the very top, you're going to have private equity penetration of middle and upper middle market companies in North America just continue to grow. So McKinsey will say that that's maybe 12% today. Those private equity sponsors are going to be looking for direct lending solutions, probably more than syndicated solutions. So I think the private credit market's going to grow direct lending by, let's say, 15% a year for the next five years. I hope we grow faster than the market. So that's on the base. I think that there's a big opportunity in secondary lending. Secondaries have been around for a long time in private equity. So LPs commit to a fund and for whatever reason, they need to sell. They have liquidity issues. They're overallocated or whatever. And there's a big secondaries business in private equity. I think that given the huge growth in private debt over the last five years, there's a big opportunity in secondaries. I also believe that there's a pretty decent opportunity in NAV lending, which is lending against essentially the equity value in a private equity sponsor's portfolio. That's pretty big today in Europe, and it's just catching on here in the U.S. What are the attractive use cases for a sponsor to take a NAV loan? A sponsor may just want to inject capital into one of their businesses. Maybe they don't want to do a capital call. I think that is what is going to be used for most of the time. I guess some of them are used as a dividend, but I think most of the time you're going to see that as a use at one of their portfolio companies. People are like, oh, but isn't it leverage on leverage? The way we would underwrite a deal like that is we want a diversified portfolio. So let's say the sponsor has eight to 12 companies in their portfolio. They have a valuation ascribed to each of those portfolios, but part of the underwriting process on our side is getting comfortable with what we really think the equity value is. So you're valuing each company, subtracting the data, here's the equity value. So you have a diversified, a number of companies, and then you're, let's say, loaning 25, 30% of the equity value. And importantly, you have triggers to get paid back. Once a company's sold, pays back the loan, or you can opt not to get paid back. So I don't think it's high risk. I think it's actually a very good business. And I think there's a pretty significant opportunity there. How do you think about where you see risks, both broadly and then specifically in your portfolios today? Well, obviously, there's certainly financial risk. 
that is more acute today in our portfolio companies than a couple years ago, just given the significant increase in rates. The good thing is for companies that we're underwriting today and that we've been underwriting while rates have been increasing, we've taken that into account. So we're underwriting really good companies with an interest rate scenario that is the latest curve. So our leverage is lower. The more challenging situations are the deals that we underwrote a couple years ago, still really, really good companies, but they're just over levered. They were done at seven plus times EBITDA, and by the way, a highly adjusted EBITDA. So the risk there is companies are struggling with meeting their interest or fixed charges. And what we do there is we have those conversations with the sponsor. We're way ahead of it. We do a deep dive. We've done a liquidity analysis on all the 480 companies in the portfolio. How much cash do they have on hand? What's their revolver availability? How much cash is coming in, going out? And the liquidity risk is actually quite small, but we're having those conversations with the sponsors way in advance of them running out of money, them defaulting on a covenant with the idea they own the business. So they should be right-sizing the capital structure. That means they inject additional equity. Maybe we provide some concessions, but if they don't invest equity, then maybe it's an opportunity for someone to come in with a pick preferred or something like that to solve the capital structure. That's on the financial side. There's certainly some idiosyncratic risks that we've been dealing with. But if you were to look at industries, we've seen issues in the commercial aerospace industry. Our portfolio there is quite small. We've certainly seen issues in consumer businesses selling into retail. That's been an issue really ever since retailers overplenished, bought too much inventory, and they've been working to sell that inventory. And then more recently, some issues in the healthcare portfolio with physician practice management businesses. But it's somewhat limited to those groups. If you look across the portfolio, revenue in EBITDA is still growing organically. So as you start to see at least some of these subsectors that have some issues, what's the state of your conversations with the sponsors today in terms of shoring up those businesses? They're not fun conversations, but we've been doing this with them for over 20 years. So probably 90% of the cases that we're dealing with today, we've done this with the sponsor in the past. So it's, hey, we're looking at it. Looks like you're going to have a liquidity problem in two quarters, or it looks like you may trip a covenant. Let's get in front of it. What are you thinking about doing? Does it make sense to bring an advisor in to review the cash flow forecast that the company's producing? So it's a lot of back and forth. And most of the time we get to the right place, but we don't get to the right place on the first one or two calls. So it takes a while. At some point in time, we'll probably have another downturn in an economic cycle. And sponsor activity is just a vast multiple of what it was the last time you went through this rodeo. And I'm curious to hear how you're preparing to weather a tougher time than it's been on your team. Sure. So we have a dedicated credit advisory group, which at most companies would be called a workout group. And it is staffed with a very senior team. So today we have 18 on that team, a lot of managing directors, senior vice presidents that have been 
working on restructurings for 20 years. It's actually expensive to have that in place when everything is rosy, when interest rates are low, the economy is growing. But what we're able to do is we have other people in the business at the junior mid-levels, even a few at the senior levels, that when things are really good, they'll move back to the core credit investing side of the business. And then when the economy starts to deteriorate, restructurings are increasing, we'll pull a few of them back into that side of the business. So we're absolutely prepared for it. They've been working on maximizing recoveries for our investors for a long period of time. That's not something that worries me. I think we'll be pretty on top of that. We're ready for it. When companies do go into distress, sometimes into bankruptcy, there's typically all kinds of games that distressed managers play and people sitting around the table and what becomes a zero-sum game. I'm curious if you've seen anything different or the flavor of what might happen. Maybe last time around, it was CDS and triggering CDS in the very early wave of defaults. I don't know that there's going to be anything different this time. You're still going to have some of the distress shops out there that are going to try and purchase debt from players in the deal and try and get to a, a blocking vote and take the company in a different direction. But that's always been there. So I don't really see anything new. The documents are certainly a little looser than they were 10 years ago, but we have not seen sponsors really take advantage of those. For the most part, the sponsors that we deal with have been really good actors. We've not really seen bad actors thus far. With this potential still tailwind at your back in this activity, how are you thinking about your business over the next five, 10 years? I'm incredibly excited about it. There are so many different potential expansion opportunities in terms of you have the base business, you have new products, then we can take it new geographies on the lending side. We're going to expand our fundraising, adding people in Europe, adding folks down the road in Asia, entering the high net worth sector. So the opportunities are really, really significant. Just need to make sure that we're prioritizing the right ones, that we're minimizing risk to the organization, and that we have the right people in place to execute the plan. So your business historically has gone through a few transactions. How do you think about called buy versus build as you assess out the opportunities in front of you? It's a really good question, and I think about that regularly. So if it's a build, it's a natural adjacency to something that we're already doing. So when I think about NAV lending, I don't really need to go buy a team. Our originators are already calling on the sponsors. We know how to underwrite credit. We're underwriting portfolios. When I'm going to do something, it's a new product. So let's say we were going into real estate. I would do that via acquisition or pulling a team out of another institution. I don't necessarily need to buy the company or the portfolio. Maybe I pull a team out. We've looked quite a bit at Europe. I wouldn't start a European lending business from scratch and grow it organically because I just think there's so many different countries. Each country's different. It's not like doing business in the US. So you need to have critical mass. And to me, you enter Europe via acquisition. How do you make the decision to go into a market that isn't an adjacency? 
So we look at some of the growth plans for our business and the tenants. How is it that we really want to grow the business? And we have a very detailed strategic plan on different, whether it's real estate, infrastructure, all those different opportunities. And in most cases, it'd be those would occur via acquisition, new product line like that. So the investment banks know that we're looking to enter the space. Then it's really finding the right company that's a, that actually really knows how to underwrite risk and importantly has a culture that we feel will work with our culture. Because I feel our culture is quite unique, really, really collaborative team. We don't work in silos. So I think culture is incredibly important in order to make those acquisitions work effectively. What is it that's kept your team together for so long? We bring different things to the table in huge respect for each other. I thank them for being my partners. I learned a great deal from them. I hope that they've learned a great deal from me. Uh, we built a pretty significant business over a long period of time. And like I said, everyone had a role in building it, but each of them brought something a little bit different to the table. So it's been a great experience. A lot of times when you go through some type of stake transaction, there can be a meaningful windfall for the original partners. There could be different restructuring of equity going forward. I'm curious, as you've gone through these different transactions and been at this for so long, what are the different ways you've seen to continue to align the interests of the people on your team? If you're a credit business, think about it. There needs to be incentives to have losses as low as possible but generate new business and deals that we really want to do and generate fee income and raise money. So you have salary, bonus, carry, and equity ownership. Equity ownership, I think, is quite important because as the firm grows, you want your team to see significant growth in their equity value. I think that's hugely important. And thus far, we've been able to get it right. Great. Tim, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Skiing, for sure. Family, three kids and a wife, we all love to ski. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? So I would say that I think most people think of me as a extrovert, but I need to work it. It's not as natural as people would think. So how have you gone about doing that? I challenge myself all the time. So it's interesting. I'm very comfortable in front of large crowds. I'm comfortable on a panel. I'm comfortable meeting with sponsors, investors, but I'm not comfortable walking into a room of 70 people and just working the room, but I make myself do it. How have you gotten yourself to do it? I think about one of the things that my parents taught me growing up that was all about work hard, perseverance, determination, and never giving up. So whether it was in school, a class, a sport, there simply wasn't an answer like, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. So throughout my career, I've looked at it and said, this is something I need to do. This is for me like a core competency. I need to be able to do this. So it's kind of forcing myself to do it. And the more I do it, the more comfortable I become. What's your biggest pet peeve? I'd say a non-investment pet peeve drives me crazy is people that don't listen. So people that interrupt me, it drives me absolutely crazy because what I know 
when they're interrupting me is they're not listening to me. And I truly think that listening, especially as a CEO, president, senior manager at any company, if you have a lot of really smart people around you and you ask really good questions and you listen to the answers, you're going to learn a lot. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So I mentioned at the beginning that my parents were educators, so I really needed to learn the business side from someone else. My aunt was a very successful businesswoman. She was a CEO of a very large hospital in Chicago. So she was around us quite a bit growing up, constantly talking to me about the stock market, talking to me about what the census was at her hospital that day, what is the challenge on the insurance side, challenges with her management team. So she really helped me in terms of classes to take in college, jobs out of college. When I told her about Antares, she's like, do it, jump on it. Opportunity like this may never come along again. So it would be her. Her name was Sheila Line. And then secondly, it would be my partners, the original group from Antares. Because once again, we never could have done what we've done without having the whole group together, challenging each other, bringing different strengths to the table. So I wouldn't be in this position today without that team. What's the best advice you've ever received? Never, ever rest on your laurels. So my belief is that you constantly need to be moving, adapting, innovating, evolving, because if you're not, your competitors will, and you're going to fall behind. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? That we need to make decisions without perfect information. So given my very analytical background, early in my career, it was well, you know what? I don't have 100%. I'm just going to analyze more. I'm going to research more. And what I realized was you're never really going to have perfect information to make a decision. So again, going back to the listening, it's you have to have the analysis. You have to surround yourself with really, really bright people, ask the right questions, be incredibly inquisitive, listen, ask more, and then ultimately make the decision. I think the only other thing I'd say that is something I learned probably later in life is how important it is to have a positive mental attitude. I truly think that it just makes, from both a personal and a professional level, it leads to just a much better life. On the professional side, if I have a positive attitude, and I'm a credit person, so in general, I'm looking for the downside. If I didn't have that positive mental attitude, it'd be more difficult for me to actually see the upside in opportunities, in new businesses, and so forth. And then I try and impart that positive mental attitude throughout the firm, and especially with my executive team. I really do believe that it makes a big difference. Well, Tim, thanks so much for sharing this long history and what's become the private credit business. Thank you very much, Ted. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.